the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good afternoon. I hope you are staying warm. Jimmy Sangenberger here with you in once again for Stefan Tubbs. News Talk 710-KNUS. Great to be with you as always. Of course, I host the Jimmy Sangenberger Show every Saturday morning from 6 to 9. I hope you'll tune in then great to be with you, as I said, and it always is indeed, especially when there's no shortage of things to talk about, interesting topics, interesting guests, and a great opportunity for you to engage at 303-696-1971. That is our telephone number. You can also text into the show on the 710KNUS app on your smartphone. You can email me via my show's page, the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, at 710knus.com or at my website, jimmysangenberger.com, where you can go to the contact page. Keep in mind, there's no A-I or U in Sangenberger. It's all E's all the time. Once you know that, Sangenberger is easy. And then a couple ways to follow me on social media. Give me a follow or like. I'd appreciate that if you feel so inclined. At Sang Center on Twitter. That's saying with an E, not an A. Center on Twitter. Or, and, or, Facebook. Facebook.com slash Jimmy Sangenberger Pro or search Jimmy Sangenberger Media Personality. And, of course, again, our telephone number throughout the show, 303 303- 696-1971, coming up at the top of this hour, uh, that would be the beginning of the next hour, I'll be joined by a good friend of mine, a leftist professor at Regis University. He's associate professor of communications at Regis, and always someone I like to talk to about freedom of speech and a variety of different topics. He is a free speech guy par excellence, and it's always great to get his insights. But we're going to get, and maybe we'll have some disagreement here, we will get to the topic of what's happening in Florida under Ron DeSantis when it comes to this AP African American Studies class that he has said, DeSantis has said, we're not allowing in the state of Florida, I would say with good reason, for high school students in Florida schools. Is that appropriate? Is that the right thing to do? It is, it seems, in fitting with the Stop Woke Act that was put into law. We'll talk about that with Dr. Rob Margison. We'll also discuss artificial intelligence. This is freaky. Are you familiar with ChatGPT? This is something that has been discussed a lot in articles over the course of the past week. I might be writing about it for my Denver Gazette column on Friday. I haven't settled on that yet. But 
it's striking because there's technology now where you can go online and you can have a conversation or ask questions, run through scenarios and narratives or whatever with this open AI program that now Microsoft is pouring investment capital into. I think billions of dollars. And ChatGPT is just uncanny, and it's possible to write essays, basically, with this ChatGPT program. What is the possible impact on academia, K-12, through and the college level? We'll talk about that as well with Professor Margeson and get your thoughts at 303-696-1971. And, of course, via text on the 710-KNUS app. We'll also be joined in the next segment by Drew Hamrick. He's general counsel and senior VP for the Colorado Apartment Association. Folks, they're going for rent control again in Colorado. And in particular, what the legislature is doing in their latest issuance of a disastrous bill into the legislature is they want to allow local communities to, for the first time in 40-plus years, be allowed to put in place rent control laws, ordinances within their municipalities, which would be an absolute disaster, especially when we are struggling to provide affordable housing. It is an answer to affordable housing concerns that actually will make the situation even worse for finding affordable housing, and especially new construction of affordable housing developments. We'll talk about this with Drew Hamrick coming up in the next segment. It's a deeply disturbing bill that has been introduced into the state legislature. So that'll be coming up in a little bit here on the program. Uh, And I will note, since we'll be talking about legislation going on, I spent yesterday morning on hosting George Brockler's show talking about this bill that is going to be introduced, I don't believe it has yet, by Denver Democrat State Representative Emily Sirota, who is decidedly on the left. And she has proposed this bill that will require businesses in the service sector, especially restaurants, but not exclusively restaurants, to give 14 days notice for schedules for workers and then also ups pay in certain circumstances for what's called predictability pay. It, it's contemptuous and it's conceded on the part of Democrats to push this through and to micromanage or as the Denver Gazette editorialized on Monday to micro dictate how these companies operate. The likes of Representative Sirota don't trust restaurants of any size and large retailers to set their own employee schedules. Now, one thing that I didn't talk about yesterday was how many other businesses will actually fall under this. Retailers or other service-related industries, including retailers, with more than 250 employees worldwide, will fall under this insane bill. So if you work for one of the 
major food franchises or you work for a major shopping franchise or a grocery store, you will fall under these requirements. And it is absolutely ludicrous. My column for Colorado Politics Today dives into it. It's entitled, Will Conceit and Contempt Define Legislative Session? Because make no mistake, this is conceited, and this is a prime example of contempt. And it is, frankly, and we'll see this play out when we talk about the rent control bill coming up in the next segment. It is another instance of a line of legislation ranging from counterproductive to harmful in its effects that dismisses reality in favor of a delusional vision of what government can and should do, like rent control. The economic literature for decades, decades, has been clear on how rent control not only doesn't work, it makes things worse. I remember learning about price controls and the problems of price controls back when I was studying at Regis University, and we were reading Paul Krugman textbooks, the noted New York Times left-wing columnist. And his books were talking about the dangers and the problems of price controls. And yet somehow in the real world, they want to just toss out not only the economic literature, but they want to toss out economic reality. It's stunning. It's ludicrous, and it is indeed hubris. And I just don't understand where this mindset comes from. Oh, let's go ahead and keep doing these things that constantly fail. That's where they're coming from, and it needs to be stopped. So we'll talk about these topics and and dismiss some of the delusions that we're seeing at the legislature on the program today. I do want to make a couple observations as well as we get rolling here. Again, Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs today about what is happening with these tanks that are going to be sent in for support in Ukraine. There was an agreement between the U.S. and Germany to send dozens of modern battle tanks to Ukraine. The United States was doing its best to get Germany to send tanks, and Germany, it seems, was basically rejecting the idea of doing it itself. And so the United States said, okay, well, we'll do some tanks if you do some tanks. And so the White House has said that it is going to send 31 M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine, which is reportedly enough for a Ukrainian tank battalion. Germany, on the other hand, said it would provide 14 Leopard 2 main battle tanks and allow other European nations to provide dozens more of the German-made tanks. According to President Biden, this will, quote, enhance the Ukrainians' capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. Now, this comes on the heels of, I think, some 300,000 conscripted soldiers being sent from Russia into Ukraine to continue their war. There 
invasion of the sovereign country. And look, I really think that this is another sign that the war is being won by Ukraine and Russia is on its last legs because of the support of the international community. And by the way, for those who think that Biden is the one who's been leading the charge and the United States has been the only country carrying the water for providing support for Ukraine, I will tell you that is not true. If you go back to earlier last year, it was Europe that was the first to jump in to condemn Russia solidly to provide aid and support to the Ukrainians. And then Biden started getting in on the action and sort of took the mantle. But the Europeans have been heavily engaged. And I remember two journalists. I was in, for those who don't know, I was in Taiwan back in October for an international press tour. I was one of just three Americans in a group of 25 journalists. And we had journalists from Bulgaria and the Czech Republic who were among our group. And I have to tell you that they were deeply concerned, both of them, about what was happening in Ukraine as far as Russia's invasion. They were very deeply anti-Russian, opposed to the invasion, very supportive of what the U.S. and Europe have been doing in Ukraine because those two countries are very close to Ukraine, very close to Russia, and therefore had legitimate concerns and have legitimate concerns here with what's going on. We're not in a vacuum. The United States has never been in a vacuum where we can truly just shut off the rest of the world or simply turn inward. I have not opposed support for the Ukrainian people because I believe it is essential to U.S. national security and I believe that it is pivotal to the failure of the Russian invasion and what we have seen over the past however many months. Now, that does not mean that we don't need greater accountability. In fact, we do. We need more oversight. We do need a full accounting of what's been sent and where, etc. I am fully on board with that. But When you think about it, 300,000 conscripted Russian soldiers may sound like a lot, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be very well trained. In fact, it'll be very unlikely that they are well trained for what's going on or for what they're expected to carry out going into the fray. And the kind of support now that they're getting from the Americans and the Europeans in terms of these tanks can help really shift the tide against Moscow evermore. So I don't think that this is a sign that this is, and other experts I was talking with, uh, my friend Keith Nobles, who was military intelligence contractor in the last decade of the Cold War, really understands Russia A hell of a lot. Expertly well. And he was saying, look, the the goal here is clearly to degrade and destroy as much of Russia's capacity to make war as possible. 
And this is really fitting with the goal uh, goals of the United States going back decades vis-a-vis protecting American interests um, and protecting Eastern Europe and so forth. So we'll see what ends up happening, but this is not something where I'm thinking, oh, this is some concerning escalation in the war. In fact, I think it is a good sign for where things are at now and where things are headed. Of course, your thoughts always welcome. 303-696-1971. We are going to take a break. When we come back, Drew Hamrick will join me. He is Senior VP of the Colorado Apartment Association. We'll talk about the dangers of this rent control bill in the state legislature coming up on the other side. Again, Jimmy in for Stefan. You're listening to Denver's local talk leader, News Talk 710 KNUS. We're back with the House Rent Blues. Okay, it's the first part to one bourbon, one scotch, one beer. But did you know that this song by George Thorogood is actually a combination of two John Lee Hooker songs? House Rent Boogie and One Bourbon, One Scotch, One Beer combined into a single song. And you got to love it. I actually saw George Thorogood uh, probably about eight years ago in Boulder. It was a really good show. A lot of, lot of fun. Welcome back. Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs. And I felt it was apropos to have little lyric that says the house rent blues because, folks, we are struggling right now to see an end to the affordable housing situation. That is to say where the cost of housing keeps rising. And at least that's certainly the sense for everybody. And a lot of the data has shown this. We have seen more difficulty in finding places to live and affording places to live. So a lot of people facing those house rent blues. But when you're looking at solving the problems here, especially at the legislature, you have to be very careful in looking at what could work versus what won't work. What the economic literature, for example, and decades and decades of economic evidence proves won't work, which is rent control. And yet the legislature now has introduced in the State House of Representatives House Bill 23-1115, which would provide for municipalities across the state to decide whether or not they want to implement rent control, undoing what has been a standard for the past 40 years. What are the potential implications of this? What could the impact be on housing affordability and access to more housing units? Let's talk about it with the General Counsel and Senior Vice President of the Colorado Apartment Association, Drew Hamrick. Drew, good afternoon. Welcome. It's good to talk with you as always. Good afternoon, Jimmy. Thanks for including us in your discussion on this. Well, I I appreciate it. I saw this news and I thought, oh, no, not again. I think they introduced this last year and thankfully it was defeated. Who knows? This year could be different. I do want to get into the concerns about what 
could happen if rent control is instituted in, say, Denver or other places. But before we do, can you sort of give us a a top-line sense for what it's been like for the last 40-plus years vis-a-vis rent control in this state and how House Bill 231115 would undo that standard for decades? Yes, there was a statute that was passed in 1981 where the state just said local governments can't enact rent control ordinances. They did that because at the time uh, the city of Boulder was contemplating its own local rent control uh, piece. And the reason that's so inappropriate for a local government to engage in is it impacts all the localities around them. You know, when you enact a rent control ordinance, you remove the financial incentive for people to build new housing units or improve existing housing units. And you also uh, encourage residents to stay put, to stop moving around. And there's a big drop off in resident mobility. All three of those things make housing more expensive. Uh, but it doesn't just happen in whatever city an accident. It happens wherever people can commute from. If, for instance, Denver uh, effectively stops building with a rent control ordinance, people have to move to Aurora and Lakewood and Cherry Hills and all the places that are commutable from it, and it drives those housing prices up. So you end up with uh, one locality really messing up the housing policy of another locality, which is why the state has prohibited them from doing that. Well, and you think about areas like in the Denver metro area, and I think Denver and Aurora in particular, where you have a lot of overlap. You're not even sure at a particular place if you're actually in Denver, if you're in Aurora, if you're in, say, unincorporated Arapahoe County, but with a Denver mailing address or an Aurora mailing address, and it can get confusing, but even more it can amplify exactly what you're talking about, I would think, because in that case, you are talking units that can be, or um, say complexes that can be bordering each other and facing very different rules. But just because you're in one municipality where you have one set of rules doesn't mean it's not going to impact right next door. In fact, it will, to your point. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the impact can be measured based on the convenience of the commute across the street, the impact's a lot greater than 10 miles away. But that's one of the many problems with rent control is it starts to push people from where they want to live to where they uh, have to live, which makes our roads quite a bit more uh, crowded. You know, one of the things, Drew Hamrick, Senior VP of the Colorado Department Association, that's so stunning to me about when we see these bills put forward is that they totally ignore the wealth of economic evidence going back decades and decades and decades and all across the globe that proves rent control doesn't work. And I remember being in college and reading textbooks written by noted New York Times columnist Paul Krugman that were talking about the problems of price controls, which is exactly what rent control is, is price controls. It's not like this isn't something that is very clear and there's some debate on. The evidence is abundantly clear about how you can have all sorts of problems that result from rent control, including challenges with lowering cost of housing in surrounding areas and in boosting supply of housing. No, you're absolutely right. Rent control has never worked anywhere. There's never been a 
economic study that said it's worked. Uh, it, it's an economic disaster. The the sad thing is, you know, the, the proponents of this are not bad people, and they're chasing a policy um, that's important. They want sure. less expensive housing. They are worried about uh, people being able to afford their their families to live somewhere, and that's all of our goals. Where exactly. people of goodwill depart on this is there's folks that just don't understand the unintended consequences that occur when you take away the profit incentive for someone to build new housing. And uh, if your listeners are interested in doing a deep dive on this, uh, I think the best study out there is one that Stanford put together back in 2019 about the San Francisco rent control issue. Uh, uh, Diamond is the author, if anybody wants to Google and hit it. But, uh, you know, Stanford's not a notably conservative institution, and their conclusion was that overall the rent control ordinance in San Francisco decreased housing stock by 15% with a corresponding increase in cost and reduced tenant mobility by 20%. So, you know, the evidence is clear that in spite of all the good intentions in the world, the unintended but unavoidable uh, consequence is less housing and therefore higher price. Well, isn't it the case, Drew, that the real solution fundamentally is having more housing built and available? It's a supply and demand issue. You provide more supply for the growing demand of an increasingly populated city or county, then that means that it will help hold the rising prices in check, but also mean people have greater access to homes. For example, here's a quote from a professor at Harvard, Ed Glazier, the most natural tool towards affordability is supply. And to make sure that we are making it easy enough to build moderate cost rental apartment buildings in these cities. And yet, when you put in rent control, you discourage the construction of new units, more housing. No, absolutely. And you know, uh, there's been some recent uh, but very good news on uh, housing stock and prices. In the last quarter of uh, 2022, vacancy rates went up from 47 to 5.6% metro-wide. Now, because those are small percentages, that doesn't sound like much, but that's a 17% increase mm. in vacancy rates. And as a result, rents fell by $34 a month. And that, that also didn't maybe sound like a lot of money to listeners, but rents have only fallen on a quarterly basis three times in the last 40 years. Really? So that's a pretty mm. big sea change. And what that means is that supply is finally starting to catch up with demand. Now, of course, a rent control bill is at cross purposes with that and can undo the good work that the market has made. But ultimately, you've got to have the carrot of somebody believing they they can make money if you're going to encourage them to build something new or improve something that's existing. And rent control takes that away. Yeah, that's interesting in terms of the the slight decline in the cost of apartment rents recently. And what that shows at a minimum is that you have some stability that is starting to form in the market, which can give encouragement to folks as far as their quest to find housing. And undoing that with rent controls would be traumatic. And what's interesting, too, you look at a place like Cambridge, Massachusetts, or other parts of the country where they have removed rent controls, such as in Cambridge's case in the 1990s, 
it actually helped. It helped to produce more supply and also encourage. This is one thing that is a byproduct of rent control. You have less desire to keep up with maintenance and upgrades because it's too expensive relative to what you're able to make on those units. So by getting rid of rent control, they're able to increase the amount of maintenance and upgrades that they do. And then you make communities better. So then they're safer and you get less crime. And we go in the opposite direction. It seems to me, Drew Hamrick, if we go in this path toward rent control. Absolutely. I mean, what economic incentive would a housing provider have to improve their housing stock if once they did so, they couldn't run it for any more than they could run it before the improvement? You just leave it be and watch it crumble, which is exactly what rent control cities like San Francisco and New York have have done with their housing. Again, we're talking with Drew Hamrick. A few minutes left with our guest from the Colorado Apartment Association. I really want to put a pin on the point that you made in the beginning. And that is the reason why this would be dangerous. I mean, there's this idea, the state level, that some advocates have clearly, oh, well, rent control should be a local control issue. Local municipalities, say Denver, Aurora, should be able to make their own decisions on whether or not they want to implement a rent control scheme. But I really want to put a pin on why going in that localized direction and undoing that 1981 law, we're talking, what, 50 years ago? I mean, it is 40, 50 years ago. It is stunning to think about reversing that. But why? Really put a pin on that point, please, Drew. Well, yeah, let me do it by example. Say I'm uh, living out in Aurora and uh, fat, dumb and happy and paying my rent and uh, (laughs) life is good. I've never voted for a Denver city council person. I don't have anything to do with the Denver housing market. Denver enacts a rent control ordinance, which puts a stop to all building in Denver. So all those people who would have lived in Denver are now streaming into my neighborhood and bidding up the scarce housing that's there. So I end up with much higher rent because Denver has effectively economically prohibited new housing development. So one city's policy impacts the residents and voters of all their neighbors. And that's why this is not a matter that's appropriate for local control. Uh, It can only be dealt with at a state level. Before we let you go, Drew, is there anything else you want to bring up in regards to either rent control or what we're seeing right now with the housing discussion? Because it is, rightly so, a top, top issue that folks across this state and and especially in places like the Denver metro area are dealing with right now. Well, I think there's one important thing for people to consider. You know, Denver enacted what they called the Affordable Housing Ordinance that became effective in June of last year. And it's a complicated ordinance, but for uh, uh, for the purposes of discussion, it's easy to describe it as on new rental housing construction, 10% of those units have to be priced at 40% less than the market rate and offered to people that make uh, 40% less than average income for the area. So there is effectively already rent control only on 10% of roughly – on new construction, all right? So you'd expect that to have a negative effect, but the effect on the Denver housing market has been so disastrous, it's worth looking at. In the three months prior to that uh, ordinance, there were applications for 12,000 and some odd 
um, multifamily housing permits. In the three months after it, which is the most recent data we can get, there were applications for 1,500 permits. So overall, there was a loss of 11,300 housing units because of it. That's 11,000 families wow. that don't have a home. That's 11,000 Denver families that are going to be bidding up the price of housing in Lakewood, Aurora, Commerce City, wherever. Mm. And so on this just very small scale, uh, you can see how impactful these decisions can be to the market. Mm. We need to be encouraging people to build instead of discouraging them. And one, one final thought I'd give if I've got enough time. You know, multifamily housing is the answer to our problem. It consumes less real estate. It uses less energy. It costs less money, and it puts people closer to where they want to live so they're not driving on our roads so much to go from where they live to where they want to be. Yeah. And uh, we really need to encourage that form of housing to get us out of this shortage of housing that has been building for decades. It's just simple, basic economics, and it's it's so straightforward that it makes you wonder how in the world these kinds of laws can go into place or be proposed in the first place. But that's why we have guys like you on to talk about and break down what could happen if, say, this new House Bill 1115 were to become law. Drew Hamrick, Senior VP at the Colorado Apartment Association. Really appreciate your time this afternoon, sir. Thank you. Thanks for the platform. Take care. You bet. Thank you as well. Once again, Drew Hamrick joining us. We're going to take a break. On the other side, Rob has been patiently waiting. If you can wait a few more minutes, we'll get to you right on the other side of the break, as well as to, I think I got a couple of emails coming in here, texts. What are your thoughts on the rent control proposal that flies in the face of reality? I mean, it's how we're even here is just mind-boggling to me. Keep it right here. Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs on News Talk 710 KNUS, Denver's local talk leader. Feeling that soul, little Billy Breston, bringing us back. Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs. News Talk 710 KNUS. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You know what? You're going to have nothing as far as a greater supply of places to live if rent control becomes the law of the land in any cities in Colorado because the state legislature says, you know what, we're going to undo that law that we put in place in 1981 and allow local municipalities to bring back rent control. As Jim emails in to yours truly via my website, jimmysangenberger.com. Rent control will only serve to have less inventory of rental properties, among other things. Yes, that's exactly right. Rob has been patiently waiting to get in on the conversation. Rob, thanks for holding on. You're on with Jimmy and for Stefan. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. You bet, Jimmy. I'm not sure that rent control is going to matter. What do you mean? Or why not? Uh, well... So one thing, because I do a fair amount of research, um, one thing I came across yesterday says, and I don't know how credible credible it is, that if Putin uh, loses the war, he's going to use nukes. There's uh, questions about his health status. So I guess one outside concern would be that 
you know, his health status takes, uh, you know, a bad turn for him. And he decides to do something I see. rash or extreme. I see what you're and saying. Not, so you're, you're suggesting rent control won't matter because maybe we could have nuclear war on our hands. No, I think I think what I'm suggesting, Jimmy, is that. So, so some of the other research that I've looked at. So there's a guy named Jim Rickards that says that you know, a lot of what we're hearing is actually just propaganda, and actually the war is not going all that well. You know, for Ukraine and for the West. Yeah, I, I don't um, think I, I would, don't think the evidence bears that out. But please continue, Rob, with your point. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I'm uh, afraid and actually packing to leave the country because I think this is not very well thought out. Um, I I'm actually the the great grandson of people that fled Russia. So I don't have any illusions about Russia whatsoever. Sure. I mean, it, I think. But um, so I think what it boils down to, just to oversimplify it, is so Ukraine and the West want to take back all the territory which they've lost um, dating back to about 2015 or 2012 or whatever year it is. And to Russia, that's unacceptable. So when I I talked to a um, a Ukrainian, mm-hmm. and what he said was, the way he envisioned it was kind of like Japan after World War II. And he said that was what he thought the end result of all this would be, and I don't see any reason to disagree with in that. Which, in which respect would that be like the like an occupation of the from the no, West not, or not like a not. Not like an occupation, and I've actually lived in Japan. Sure, but what, what do you mean from some, from? Because I'm I'm getting low on time, Rob. Yeah, some some cities in Japan were reduced to where, you know, there was there was hardly a building you could see over five feet high. Mm-hmm. So that was what this guy thought the end result would be. Oh, I, I see. I and see. I you mean in terms of the devastation. That it is going to be so devastating that even if Russia pulls out or Ukraine gets to retake territories that had been lost to Russia, the rebuilding is going to be a dramatic challenge because the the devastation is going to be so real. I think I think a reasonable outcome would be that Ukraine is pulverized. And I would I would say this this is probably the most important point. Imagine that we had a territory of conflict, which we kind of do, but, well, to the south of us. But imagine we had a territorial conflict on our border. Um, We would do almost anything to try to reverse that. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I I would challenge you, Jimmy, to try to make a, um, an argument in the other direction and to see what validity you come up with, because um, well, but I don't what, think, what country, I don't what country are you saying well. is worried about conflict on the border? Are you talking about Russia? Because Russia started this. Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia took it upon themselves. Vladimir Putin did that to invade Ukraine and stir up this, these these uh, this, uh, this, this is, war. This is a seven hundred year war border war. 
This dates back 700 years. So there, are a lot another, of geo, gotten, there are a lot of longstanding geopolitical issues, Rob, that go back hundreds of years in history. But the makeup of the political lines of Russia and Ukraine go back, what, th- some 30 years and with a little bit of change along the way. And in that time span, in that time span, there's no justification for Russia to say, well, we're going to go back to our view from hundreds of years ago and – um, and go ahead and engage in this invasion and take back territory. If you're talking about going back 700 years, you're finding yourself going backwards in a way that doesn't fit the, the realpolitik of the world today. And it justifies, it provides justification to Vladimir Putin to do whatever the hell he wants. And we cannot allow that in today's world situation. The dynamics of countries that have sovereignty today and having those invasions could be tolerated because of some historical idea on the part of Vladimir Putin just doesn't fly and should not fly in this day and age or any time in the future. I appreciate the call, though, Rob. We're up against a break here with Jimmy Sangenberger filling in for Stefan Tubbs. When we come back, and later on we can get back to this discussion about Russia and Ukraine, rent control, what have you, and those different topics. But in the next hour, I'll be joined by Regis University Associate Professor of Communication, Dr. Rob Margison, to get his take as someone who's described himself as a leftist on what Ron DeSantis is doing vis-a-vis the AP African-American Studies class in Florida, plus the prospect of artificial intelligence being used by students in education. This is a very real thing. Your mind may be blown by what you will hear. Stay with us. 710 KNUS. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.